all documentaries manipulate their characters. I filmed with the, the cyclist Bradley Wiggins and what I thought was a really quite sort of honest but quite an affectionate portrait. The first time he watched it, he turned around. He said, I don't think I like any of it. I fucking hate it. Hello, I'm Edgar Dubrovsky, London-based cinematographer. Welcome to Open, the podcast where I speak to guests representing the film industry's lesser discussed professions. Just a reminder, these are audio versions of the Insta Lives where these chats took place. So please forgive me for the audio quality of the recordings. This week I talk with John Dawa, documentary director, a nominee for Emmy, BAFTA and Sundance, winner of Peabody and Grierson Awards. John has shot over two dozen documentaries. We work together on his most recent feature, The Mystery of D.B. Cooper, that's out on the BBC and HBO Max. Documentary versus fiction directing, favorite interview strategies, and working with Louis Theroux. We talk it all. Enjoy. John, I had two cold openings for this. I'm going to ask one of them. The other one was if you're afraid of death, but we're going to talk about this later. So I'm going to start with an easy one. You're one of the people who sort of taught me that the books can be abused. I saw this on the first job I think we worked on. You were reading something and literally everything I'm not doing in here, but like a lot of stuff was underlined or circled or there was a comment on the side. Can you talk me through what do you underline? What do you circle? And how do you use, do you use it or, or is it just a way to read? No, it's a way to read. I mean, I've, I've always done it. I mean, I actually studied English literature and philosophy at university and I always found it as a way of helping me concentrate. It's a habit more than anything else. I mean, I'm possibly like a lot of directors, you know, have a strong sense of OCD. And so it's just something I keep doing. If I see something I like, I underline it. And sometimes I do go back and read stuff. Yeah, and I do take far too many. I, I can't do the Kindle. I just can't do it. Mm -hmm. So so I do take a lot of, as you've seen, take a lot of books with me. You know, I, weirdly, when I go on the road, I often, you often end up being on the road longer than you expect. And I always mm -hmm. like to have a, a good book with me. You mentioned the education, so you study literature and philosophy. Do you feel it helped you anyhow to become a better filmmaker? Did you have any filmmaking experience? In None whatsoever. I didn't originally want to be a filmmaker. I wanted to write books. I tried to write a book. I tried to write a novel, and it was fucking awful. And I think at least I realized... Did someone tell you that, or you told that no, yourself? I just knew. I knew. I mean, the English degree did help with knowing that I'd written something really, really bad. <laughs> and um, so, but you know, I mean, it's a, it's a massive cliche, isn't it? But it's, you know, it's all storytelling, isn't it? And, um, you know, I like stories. And I thought the medium of film, particularly non-fiction film, might be a good way of trying it. It took me a long time to get there. I mean, I, in some ways, I kind of wish I'd gone to film school. Um, Why? But well, because I'd be interested to have tried things out there that early on. Not, not mean, hire any DPs to shoot yourself. Well, the first few documentaries I made, I did actually shoot myself. Um, yeah, let's talk about that. So the penis in the Slandic phallic museum. So that, <laughs> that was, so that, that was the, kind of a doc. I was quite fortunate in the, so very quickly, I studied English literature and philosophy at university. I started a, a radio station with some other characters that we managed to get funding for from Stella Artois. Um, <laughs> and um, 
that got me a journalism course, a year's journalism course, which, if I'm honest, was only useful in that it, I realized I did a work placement with, at Channel 4 News with Jon Snow. And, and I think I realized that just straight hard news was not for me. I didn't have the temperament. So I then flipped 360 degrees, went and worked for a cable TV station, which back in the day was known for having a news bunny and topless darts. I mean, you know... <laughs> Pretty the golden dreadful. the golden age of british tv yeah yeah there's some pretty dreadful low-rent um television but it was a lot of fun and, and but and, uh, while doing all that you had some form of like these days you know gen y and generation z did you have sort of aspirations of winning an oscar as a documentary filmmaker no. or what no, why while doing it what was in your brain was it like sort of do a bit of this and then quit and do something else no, I wanted to try. I wanted to try and make documentaries. One early documentary filmmaker, Nick Broomfield, one of his films, "Looking for Maggie," I think it was called. Mm -hmm. And I thought, hey, you know, documentaries can be done in quite an interesting way. I'm nearly fifty. It was harder in those days to actually, you know, you didn't have phones where you could shoot stuff on. So there was a lot of beg, borrowing, and stealing, and just trying to learn. And then I, I took a job actually at Sky. It's still going, actually, this channel called Sky Sports News. One of the reasons I explicitly took that job is they had a shift pattern where you worked four days on and then you had four straight days off. And I had an idea for a documentary and I wanted to just make it. And that was the very first days of the small digital cameras. I mean, I think it was the first ones, not even the PD-150s, but the one that came out before that. Yeah. And actually, me and a friend of mine... Ashley Hames, who was actually the news bunny at live TV. Um, he had to wear the news bunny suit. We did a really bad thing, actually. We were responsible for the Grand National, you know, the horse race? Yeah, yeah, yeah. We were responsible for the office sweepstake. And we put all that money on one horse. Um, <laughs> which lost or died? Which won. We got early odds. We got only earlier 18 to 1. With that money, we bought one of these first digital cameras and I started making this very first documentary. Do you miss those years when an idea and a shoot were literally a days apart? Do you miss that sort of ease of making stuff smaller? Yeah, I mean, yeah, and I do have these romantic ideas of going back to buying a small camera again and shooting stuff myself. But I mean, that's one of the reasons I stopped self-shooting pretty quickly, because, you know, I wasn't very good. I mean, I could frame it and it looked all right, but I, you know, I didn't understand lighting. You know, I didn't have any training. I, I'm like, I don't want it to look like this. I want it to look like that. You know, I want it to look like that film, The Thin Blue Line. It's like, well... <laughs> You ain't going to get that on a PD-150 with the way you like shit. So that's why I wanted to work with DOPs. And there is, you know, shooting your own stuff is tough as well. Mm -hmm. I mean, it, it, it distracts you from the, the storytelling. You know, I occasionally hanker to... Would you say people romanticise it too much? Would you say it's, it's just a stepstone, but then really, really you do need a bit of a team and commissioner and a distribution? Like, what's the purpose of it all in the end? To have a good film? Well, it's, it's changed, isn't it? Because now anybody can do that. Anybody can, you know, we've got the opposite problem where everyone can shoot something and everyone can cut something and everyone puts it out there and, you know, we're drowning in content and it's the, essentially, the good stuff will always out, won't it? Mm -hmm. but, but again, going back to those early days, I mean, it is again such a cliche, but I had a massive slice of luck. I made this film 
I shot this documentary myself. I cut together some material. I persuaded a friend at the time who had an edit suite to help me cut it. And I sent it everywhere to every broadcaster. In those, those days, there weren't that many. And no one got back to me. And then one guy called Darren Bender, who was working at Channel 4, and he said, I really like this, but I can't commission this, but I want you to go away and shoot something else for me. So my first official documentary was about the, the amateur porn scene in suburban London, which is still one of the darkest <laughs> films I've ever, <laughs> most depressing, darkest films I've Have ever. Have you ever thought to go to a sequel of uh, <laughs> what it's no, like honestly, now? Honestly, it was so, I went to a, I went to a, porn shoot in uh i think it was a living room in slough and it was uh it was this um the girl was a professional porn actress and then the guys were auditioning and the guy who agreed for me to film his day was a used car salesman in slough i mean it was so depressing but it actually made an interesting film because it was very dark and it was about do you do you feel because it's a bit of a if you look at uh, your sort of list of docs and the sort of smaller docs you maybe did on a, on a side while doing the bigger ones do you feel there's a certain trend to unusual stories that people go for you to film Are you choosing them or do people tend to come to you with slightly odd ideas no, I wouldn't generalise too much. I mean, the, one of the problems is I'm rubbish at coming up with my own ideas for films. I'm rubbish. Yeah, you mentioned come, that to me. <laughs> I come up with quite a lot, and then I sort of work on them, and I'm like, actually, that's just, that's not going to sustain. And I always think in terms of feature docs now, which is possibly not Instead the, of, you mean serious, right? Like that people should think in series now, in terms well, of like, I, episodes? It's a tricky one, this, because... I'm actually doing my first ever series now. I mean, in 20 years of making docs, I've never done one. Mm -hmm. And this is my first one. And it is different. They've always been around. I mean, they've always been on British television and some really, really good ones. But I think when I made my first feature doc, I loved that challenge of making a, an 80, 90 minute documentary film that can have three acts and, and can be longer than an hour. And it's tricky. And I think the problem was I always used to think in terms of 90-minute films. So I'd have an idea and think, well, I'm never going to get past. Well, I'm certainly not going to get past an hour. And with some of them, I'm not sure if I'm going to get past 10 minutes. Um, and actually, <laughs> You I, mean I, on I, the, based on the idea, right? You mean? Yeah. And I wish I'd made, I wish I'd turned a few more of those ideas into short films. In terms of coming up with idea, you know, for say maybe younger guys and girls looking at this and, and kind of learning from your experience as well do you feel just go for it you know going back to my early days i picked up a camera and just started making something no i mean it's even harder now i've spoken to a few young directors recently one of whom i may actually end up being her exec producer and it's like you just need to go and film some of the story now i mean it's a few years ago it was enough to have a treatment and a pitch and but now no one will take you seriously unless they can look at some tangible footage and, and, and see, is there a story here? Are there good characters? Um, so you, you have to go and you have to go and do it. Something. Just start. Can you talk about the process of making, say, an average feature dog these days, just so people sort of understand the process? So what's a taster tape, for example? Like maybe talking 
as an example, I don't know if you can talk about the DB Cooper. For people who don't know, it's a feature doc about uh, airplane hijacking for HBO slash BBC. So that's where it ends as a product. Can you talk yeah. a little bit how it became that product? Well, again, so that is actually the first time I've ever shot a taster. And again, I've been fortunate and then I've managed to get films off the back of treatment or a book option or something like that. But this was, so a company I know approached me with this idea and I initially was a little skeptical because I thought that's not going to sustain 90 minutes. And I thought they're just a bunch of wackos. There's not enough. So they, they came with idea to you as a yeah. director to execute it, basically, to, to actually yeah. make it. Well, mm -hmm. to shoot a taster. I mean, you know, cards mm -hmm. on the table. They had £40,000 from Sky Atlantic to shoot. The, I don't know if I should have even said that amount, but anyway, I have. <laughs> but they had a lot of money to make a taster, which is very rare. And even mm -hmm. part of me was thinking, well, this is a good opportunity to, you know, to try something out, you know, and mm -hmm. to, um, uh, I mean, I kind of liked the story, but I wasn't totally convinced that it could sustain 90 minutes. I mean, I have to say, two thirds of the way through the project, I still wasn't quite sure at times if it was going to sustain 90 minutes. Or the but, edit. <laughs> yeah, we got there, well, we got to 84 and 16 seconds, but so... <laughs> Very quickly, the very short story is Thanksgiving Eve 1971, a guy in a black suit, wearing a black tie, black sunglasses, gets on a flight going from Portland, Oregon to Seattle, carrying a black attache case. The plane takes off. As it takes off, he hands the stewardess a note and says, I have a bomb in my briefcase. They circle above Seattle. He gives another note with their demands. He wants four parachutes and, and $200,000. And so... <laughs> The airline and the FBI agree to this. They land in Seattle. He lets all the passengers off. They bring on the money. They bring on the parachutes. He keeps the air crew on. He says, take me to Mexico. Ten minutes into the flight, it's an old 727 where stairs go down at the back. They're at 10,000 feet. He straps on the parachute, straps on the money, opens the door, jumps, never seen again. Biggest FBI hunt in history. So anyway, it's a great story. But I'm like, well, what are the other elements of this story? You can't just tell the story of that flight. You know, it's, well, first of all, much of the cabin crew had never spoken about it. But what was interesting is... So access is, goes through your brain straight away as a documentarian. What's, what's the access? Who can you your talk first to? Thought, your first thought in a documentary should be, who is telling this story? Who, is, who are the storytellers? Who are going to carry it? Because if you have no one to tell the story, you end up with... And I've done it myself on a couple of docs back in the day. You know, you end up with swathes of horrible, boring voiceover. And you want who is going to tell this story in the best possible way? And the interesting thing about the Cooper film was that so they never find this guy, D.B. Cooper. And so there are theories as to it could be this person. It's my brother's husband. You know, it's so there are people out there who claim to know him. So you've got you've got a pool of storytellers there. And so the taster was, okay, we go out there and do these people sustain a film? And I went out there and sort of fell in love with the story and became convinced they do. They do. And that was about four years ago, if I'm correct, because you showed oh, me that taster so when you were shooting that ago. commercial. So long ago. And the film uh, is only was... now ready to be released. Yeah. Yeah, April 2016. Why does it take so long? What What's the well, situation? Well, it, it doesn't, always, doesn't always take so long. This one was different in the... We shot the taster. Sky Atlantic loved it, loved the taster. They said, we want to go big on this. They gave us a very good budget for a feature doc. We started doing 
you know, the budget and all that takes time. And then Sky suddenly announced that they weren't going to do feature docs anymore. So <laughs> I think that was my wife said that was the moment you should have walked away. But I didn't. And um, I couldn't really. But you use Sky's money to shoot the taster, though. <laughs> Right. They're, yeah, they're no, we still had to give fine. them. We, but the deal was that if you get it commissioned, we had to give them the money back. Ah, you know, okay. So you can't use the it. Money back. <laughs> Shit, I hope nobody from Sky's on here because maybe we didn't give the money back. <laughs> so then we pitched this film around, around, and around for months, and you know there was some. Interest. Can you explain to people because I think details are interesting here for the kids who are watching and, and might go into it and, and do the same as you pitching. I seen you pitch at that Sheffield kind of film market pitching sessions. It's a, a, you walk in, it's basically like a market. sports hall, meat market. In fact, so weirdly, it, I found the cat. I've just been tidying out my office because you know what else are you supposed to do at the moment? Repaint. And, um, <laughs> and I found I actually ripped out of I found the catalog from that year. It's interesting finding it and going back through all these projects, it's quite depressing and thinking so many of these projects, I don't want to name them because that feels unfair, but so many of these projects probably didn't get made and some of them mm. look great or maybe they're mm. still being made. Let's just clarify. So meat market is you walk in, it's like a sports hall full of tables. On each table, there's basically a project and then yeah. people from different channels from all over the world, they come in and they're like, okay, this sounds interesting. I'm going to give you so much money for it, for basically yeah. the rights to distribute in different territories. So yeah. you sold it to like Norway or you sell it to Russia or someone in Britain might pick it up. But it's basically projects to be made, right? That's yes. the, the, it's, mm -hmm. it's basically like speed dating for documentaries. So you yeah. get, I mean, it literally. And it's tens and tens a day, right? Because when I walked yeah. in, it was like just yeah. noise of people pitching to each other. Yeah, you're pitching to broadcasters around the world. And, you know, the reality is everyone wants an American broadcaster on board because they've got the most money. Um, mm. And, you know, it's great. It was invaluable having the likes of Norway and the rest of Scandinavia on board because that brings you a, a very tangible chunk. But you need one sizable broadcaster. And, um, mm -hmm. well, we already had the BBC Storyville on board, but they don't fully finance docs. So they need like a second, at least another yeah, one to it. But I think having them on board brings a lot of credibility and a lot of kudos. And I think it encourages other broadcasters who might be more nervous in having to put in all the funding themselves to come on board. Not all docs are made in this way. Netflix docs, majority of aren't. They're just fully financed, which is why everyone wants to make Netflix docs. And then um, it goes through the similar process. It's basically a pitch meeting, or they go to some of these markets as well. How would that work uh, if someone or, wants to make a Netflix? There's no rhyme or reason. I mean, just to finish off on Cooper, you know, like anything, it, it does come down to previous connections. And I was able to help bring on HBO on board because I'd made a film for them now, 10 years ago. And so there's a trust there. They're like, well, we liked your last one. So hopefully you won't fuck this one up. So they came on board. But it varies. I mean, sometimes you don't have to pitch. Sometimes you just get a straight commission. They like the story. They're willing to take a pitch on it. But this one was one of the ones that had to be pieced together. And they're the hardest because it often takes you... I mean, it took us longer to raise the money than it did to shoot the film. It's true, yeah. Actually, it's true, I just realized, because it was shot relatively quickly. It was a few trips to US. Yeah. A yeah. studio setup you did in London, and then quite a long edit yeah. process. 
Man, yeah, thanks yeah. for breaking that one down. So Andre Luca is asking, any tips about approaching a person that should carry the story, but is a boring storyteller? <laughs> Ugh, that's a hard one. Is it down to the edit or other ways to do it? It depends why they're boring. If they're just not very good at telling a story, then you're in trouble. If they're carrying the film, you're in trouble because there's no getting around it that it goes back to what I said originally. It's who is telling the story. If I had any stylistic consistency in my films, I like my films to be told by an ensemble, by a collection of people. Even if there's a central character, I like other spin-off characters to provide light and shade. So I think that's one way. If the main person is boring then you need other characters to cast light on them. The problem is if someone's not a good storyteller, there's just not a lot of ways around it. But you'll be surprised at how much you can get out of someone, particularly if you're editing them with other material, other characters. It's a good point, yeah. Just if someone is boring, add more people to make it less yeah. boring, basically. I need to ask, you mentioned the ego, and you told me I can ask, tell me, my Scientology movie. So you yes. directing a film for Louis Theroux, who is obviously yeah. a household sort of a name and, and the love of many people in documentary, especially in UK. It's called My Scientology Movie. I guess meaning Louis, or maybe me, meaning Marty, who is the main character then, who is sort of creating his own story. What's the relationship there? So a presenter-led doc, quite established presenter, then a director known for his kind of bold choices and known for his, you know, ways to shoot stuff. How do you come, how did it work together? What was that experience like? Well, first off, it was a great experience. I mean, I think it's probably the most fun I've ever had making a film. I mean, it was very tricky at times, but in terms of our relationship, I mean, when it says my Scientology movie, it's Louis's Scientology movie. I mean, I have a massive input into how that's being made, but I'm under no illusions, and I was never under any illusions before I started making it, that he is upfront and central. People are not going to come to a cinema to watch my Scientology movie. Maybe two or three might. Might come to the Brixton Ritzy on of an afternoon when they've got the cheap tickets. But if it's Louis Theroux's my Scientology movie there's a good chance that lots of people are going to go to several cinemas, which was obviously an attraction in the very first place. And that was a funny one because that I was approached, again, not my idea, never have any fucking ideas, and I was approached by um, <laughs> the producer of Man on Wire and Searching for Sugar Man. Simon, Simon Chin, Tree. right? Yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. And listen, I was definitely not the first director he approached. There was a list, and I think they'd got quite far down that list. I mean, they'd even, you know, they tried to shoot some stuff with a couple of, quite significant Hollywood directors, um, which I'm still not allowed to name. I can't even remember. I don't think Louis even names them in his book. And I was initially a bit like, mm, I'm not sure about this, because I've never worked with someone in front of the camera in that way, a presenter. And I remember, you know, a, a cameraman I'd worked with quite a lot had done it himself, and he's like, oh, it's quite hard work, because you end up doing twice the work and you get mm. and it's quite it's quite thankless so i was humming and harring and it was my wife who was again she said you know get over yourself it's not first of all louis not really a presenter in the traditional sense you know he doesn't present to camera he's very much a character in his own films and you know he's louis Theroux. and you know i grew up watching his stuff i mean i loved weird weekends so 
it felt like an opportunity. And again, the brief from Simon and the BBC was do something different with Louis. We don't want mm -hmm. another Louis TV programme. It's got to be different. It's got to be made with the view that we want to try and play it in cinemas. So you can't have another sort of just a longer Louis version. It's got to have something else, something a bit different to it. And all the problems with that film were at the beginning where I'd sort of join the film and then I'd leave the film again. So initially I'm like, yeah, I'm interested. And then I'm like, no, I don't want to make a film present. And I'm like, no, 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 this is crazy. It's Louis. And then we worked on this idea of doing something really different. And I came up with this idea that was way too radical. I mean, it was just nuts. And then Louis's like, no, I can't do that. And I'm like, okay, well, that's all I've got. And then I left. Is it because there's a certain brand? There's some expectations of what Louis Theroux doc is? I don't think so. Well, I think, you know, there's always an expectation is that Louis going to be in it and he's going to be doing his stuff with characters and exploring, you know, interesting characters. Can you tell what the idea was? Yeah, I mean, there's not, I mean, again, he, he writes about it. I'm not trying to flog his book here. I'm getting no money off the back of it. But he, it was quite interesting. <clears throat> Suddenly he's reading his book and thinking, oh, God, and he's actually written it pretty much exactly as it happened. So the man don't lie. But um, yeah, no, the idea was we want to, Louis had seen Act of Killing, and he liked that idea of... Reenactment. Reenactments, but in a more live, visceral workshop kind of way, rather than sort of drama stage. Mm -hmm. And I'm, you know, I'm a big fan of this Iranian film called Close Up, which I think is a work of genius, which really flirts between fiction and, and non-fiction. And so there was, from both of us, an ambition to just have more than Louis, just his usual thing of which works, but have more of his usual thing of interrogating people in their kitchens or in their habitat. So we came up with this idea for reenactment, but I took it really too far. I mean, the, the, my first treatment, it was all about the making of a movie. I'm making a movie about Louis trying to make a movie. I mean, it had so many layers of, <laughs> and I think Louis was like, there's actually it's a like really some good New York a bit. There's a really good quote in his book, actually, on that. I can see his book on that top shelf, but I'm worried if I try and get it down, it's, it could end in disaster. But um, <laughs> in fact, no, I think exactly. I wrote it. I wrote it. I wrote it. it, it I, I've got it somewhere. I'll read it out because it's, it's a good... Yeah, yeah, yeah. Anyway, yeah. listen, Louis's like, well, I'm not doing that. I mean, there was another stalemate, but there was still something in it. So essentially, that first scene that's in the film where we... We try and cast an actor to play the head of the church of Scientology, David Miscavige. That was kind of, let's see what happens. In, in some respects, that was our taster. You know, mm -hmm. if, if this doesn't work, then maybe we just, we leave it and we all walk away. Because they'd originally shot some material before I came on board, which was Louis with Marty at his house in Texas. And, you know, it was interesting, but it still felt like that traditional louis tv show which believe me works but again we kept saying people will have a higher expectation if they come to see it at the cinema they don't just want to see a longer louis tv program so it was let's use marty and do something different with him and that first shoot it worked and we felt something's happening here so we just we kept going with that but we were we were slightly spoiled on that film because we didn't really have much of a story. It was just like, let's try these reenactments. Let's explore the church through this and other whistleblowers and see what happens. But there was always the safety net of Louis because he's very, very good. I mean, he's, you know, he's really good. In, in front of camera, he's, um, there were a couple of moments where I did a thing. He, he just did this tour in Australia and I was asked to record a video and they picked that moment. If you've seen the film, there's this great moment 
it is a great moment, even though we made it. It is a great moment where we're outside the base at night and they come out and we're filming them and they're filming us. And then Louis just pulls out this little flip camera from his pocket and then starts filming the guy filming him. And there's this weird, and I do remember thinking at the like time, standoff. yeah, shit, man, you're good. You know, that's that. And I remember that they were saying, so how did you direct that scene? I'm like, well, I just stood back and you know, watched it happen. <laughs> you mentioned egos, you know, like, and you both, I guess, have pretty large egos and pretty large and, and strong opinions. How, yeah. what's your advice in, in navigating, maybe using his, him an exam, as an example, but even going into meetings with someone who commissions, be it HBO, BBC, what's that minefield? How do you walk it? Because you have quite a character and I don't think you're hiding it usually. Do you then have to play it down in the meetings or are you just you? Like that's what yeah, they're going to no, get. Unfortunately, I am me, um, which doesn't always work. But, but I think you have to, again, it's a cliche, but if you've had any success in film, and I'd like to think I have had some success, you know that it is a genuinely collaborative medium. You own, it only works if you collaborate. And you know when someone brings something that's great to the table or you stand by something and, and it doesn't work in an edit. You can see that. There's no point in... And it was a really collaborative process with Louis. I was surprised at how collaborative it was, actually. I expected to... Um, I mean, we did lock him out of the edit suite for the first few weeks, deliberately. Um, but, was um, he, like, okay with it? Or was it, he, like, a news he was a bit like, I never really got his... Louis is very good at hiding away what he... You know, which is why he's so successful on screen in some of those moments. He's very good at hiding what he's actually thinking. So we mm. never quite shared it until I read the sections in the book where it's actually quite funny and quite revealing but we did it deliberately because it was like give us a go with the material first and then when he came in he was he's good he's really good in the cutting room and louis by his own admission is he's not a director he doesn't want to direct things he wants to be directed he takes direction really well i mean it was bumpy at the beginning but it was bumpy at the beginning because we were approaching it both very deliberately differently and as a director in something like presenter-led piece like my Scientology movie what's your role in terms of well you're coming up with project you're coming up with scenes you're coming up with certain overall arch of it so there's and, so and how is it different today today like as in day-to-day -day directing of that film when you were in LA filming oh it's 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 very different and I had to learn because I I'm used to asking the questions in my films and I'm used to of interrogating course. the yeah. subjects so the very first day we're filming before we even do the casting we're shooting a scene in Marty's hotel room before we go and do the casting and there's this bonkers moment which some people still think stays and is not staged at all and one of the things as a documentary filmmaker you dream of is we're filming in this hotel room and um, <laughs> yeah it's the opening right yeah this woman in a bikini knocks and this very attractive woman in a bikini knocks on the glass window so i beckon her in and then i start talking to her and it's like which is what I do in one of my own films. And then Louis like, okay, hang on a minute, John, I'll take it from here. And I had to learn to shut up, which I, mm -hmm. you know, I find quite difficult if anyone knows mm -hmm. me. And so particularly <laughs> in those first few scenes, I'd be jumping in mm -hmm. and it was like, 
In fact, he did a podcast about his book and he was quite funny in that way. He said, you know, there'd be all these moments where John would be sort of jumping in at the beginning and Louis like, look, 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 that's the only reason I'm here, John. I've got to do that bit. Otherwise, I'm doing nothing. <laughs> so that was what we had to get used to at the beginning. So that was quite unusual for me to stand back while Louis doing his thing mm -hmm. with characters. I do think I interrupted more because I think he's more used to it just filming and filming and filming. And I hate just filming and filming and filming because for me, that's not directing. That's just like CCTV. Getting that rhythm right. But then it was coming up with the reconstruction moments or just... Here's another example. Louis wanted to do... He wanted to go through the actual drills. When you're in the Church of Scientology, you go through these layers of extraordinary drills. They're bonkers. Louis just said, okay, we just get a couple of our actors together we'll start doing these drills and um you and will can will who was my cameraman for Indeed, that film, yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah will pew you can film a little bit of it and then you and will can go off and have like a three martini lunch you know and i'm like <laughs> that was the one occasion i'm like well if we are going to do this louis we need to do it properly and we need to stylize it and we should do it and we had me and will had the the old george lucas film you know that I can't remember its name. TH. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The the numbers. Yeah, TH, the, the white fiction. infinity room. Yeah, yeah. The, so we what we set up this white infinity room with all these fixed cameras and the actors, and we filmed these fixed cameras all day, all day. And so that's where I earned my directing chops and cash on that was to realise these ideas of Louis into a more filmic conception. Right. And I think yeah. you know, it, it, it kind of worked well. How does Q and A? session work for something like that sort of film i watched three q a's yesterday just to see what's the dynamic like is this where the ego takes a bit of a hit for a director people are coming to a cinema and they're coming to a q a they want to mainly ask questions to louis i have no issue with that it's the reason i'm in a big you know our premiere was at the queen elizabeth hall on the south bank there were hundreds and thousands of people in there it was it was amazing so and you know the majority of the questions are to him and some of the questions are to me i think There's i told you this this interesting situation i was i think there i was uh oh, yeah, yeah, you, you said, yeah. it was like ages ago yeah it was you and louis on stage i was just yeah i went to to see it was q a from from him and director which and then yeah randomly like a year less um we worked together I wanted to come back to something you mentioned, the OCD that directors have. Can you talk me through how does one deal? Because there are a couple of questions people asked me before this, so not just live in a session, but the, for you, the kind of the sense of constantly being on a pencil, you know, constantly kind of being in a project, but they're still in consideration, or, or you don't know if you got it, you haven't. Rejection as well, to some extent. How does one sort of navigate that field? And I think you've just got to deal with it. I mean, my deal is I get really angry for about a day and then I tend to just let it go. <laughs> I got more used to it doing commercials, which I started doing probably only about halfway through my documentary career. There's a lot of rejection in commercials because you are mainly pitching head to head with two other directors. But in doc projects, I mean, you do pitch against other directors. It's only annoying when if you think you actually think you've got a better idea. But again, the ego thing is, I mean, I think most directors probably think that anyway. So, <laughs> I mean, there was one case recently, which again, I think I, I'm free to talk about, but I pitched, I mean, I've got 
quite a tradition of sports documentaries in my locker um to extend a cliched metaphor and i was asked to pitch on a documentary which i think will be coming out soon about the former manchester united manager sir alex ferguson who's a great character and um went to an interview with the producer the exec producer and the kind of gatekeeper to the project i guess who was um sir alex ferguson's son and uh, I wrote a treatment, which I obviously thought was fucking great. Uh, actually, genuinely, when you write a treatment, you're like, that's all right, it's okay. But this one, sometimes they just happen and the magic happens. Mm -hmm. And it's mm -hmm. like, I'm channeling this story through me. It works, I get it, it feels right. You know, I've pitched on other docs, especially on many other commercials where you're writing and thinking, I'm not sure how to make this. And then the film ended up being directed by Alex Ferguson's son, <laughs> who's, who's never made a film in his life. But then mm. that was possibly the only way of getting it made. So they're quite hard to take. But there are some, you know, I mean, actually, I'm really looking forward to seeing it. Sort of fairly losing is not an issue. It's when it's a bit... Yeah, although another example is there's just sometimes you realise you're not the right person for a certain mm -hmm. film. I mean, I'm not... I don't think I'd be very good at very, very serious... Maybe that's not the best example. Another example, a film I'm looking forward to seeing, a documentary I'm really looking forward to seeing, is the um, there's a documentary that's been made on Charlie Chaplin by the two directors who did Notes on Blindness, if you've seen that film. Mm -hmm. Which mm -hmm. is a mm -hmm. great, great mm -hmm. documentary. It's very good, yeah, very good. And I was approached to make that film before them, and I was just like, I'm not sure what I'd bring to a documentary on Charlie Chaplin. I think he's amazing, I think he's great, but... I'm not but sure why you don't you don't believe in your own sort of strength as a documentarian well, guess, or is it well, the angle? No, I think I just go on my immediate gut instinct is do I have an interesting idea for that film? And I didn't really come up with one. I thought it's, it's often not a good sign. How um, how long do you give yourself to come up with an idea? Oh, a few days. Say. A few days. I do some reading. I think you know, going back to what we originally talked about. I mean, you know. I have a lot of books, but I, you know, I'm old school. I'm a great believer in documentaries come out of proper old fashioned research, reading around the subject, finding something that might, you know, when I did the Scientology film, I pretty much read all the decent books on the church because I think documentaries isn't just about the fucking lenses that you choose and the way you light it. It is, you know, there's got to be a sort of, bedrock of good research and storytelling to i don't think it's at all about lenses and, and lighting i genuinely it sounds strange i guess coming from dp but i genuinely believe it's the it's the last polish really like not even grade or so on or mix it's cinematography to an extent is the last polish because if if the idea holds it holds itself much better than i think fiction film does fiction you expect to have it yeah, I mean, I think these things go in and out of fashion as well in terms of doc. You know, when the 5D first came out, there was all that fashion for all the docs to have this sort of shallow depth of field. And it felt quite interesting at the beginning. But then they all looked like that. And then, you know, it, then it was down the lens. And then everyone's shooting down the lens. God, it's everywhere. You know, I'm not being snobby but docs on icv2 have shot down the lens and it's like well hang on this just doesn't feel interesting anymore it just it feels like wallpaper and then the two camera thing came along and everyone used the two camera 
And interesting, I'm doing my first Netflix series at the moment, and it was like, we're going to be shooting on two cameras. Now, there's a very particular reason, because of access, that we can't shoot on two cameras on this. I can't go into detail on that at the moment. It sounds very mysterious and foreboding. It isn't. It's just an access thing that I can't discuss at the moment. And we're back to shooting on one camera, and it feels quite revolutionary just because we're doing that. Mm -hmm. Um, So I think it's... I do, yeah, I think you're right. The cinematography in docs does get overblown. Although if you, if you have ambition of putting your doc into a cinema, I, I think it helps if it looks good. I do think it, but not just looks good, but has a great sound mix and a great score and, and all those things that people call cinematic. Yeah, they're, they're kind of the, 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 fun, yeah, the, the, fun, yeah, the fundament of it. No, I know what you mean, but it's generally But like... it's interesting. I, I'm, you know, I pitch on docs and I'm genuinely keen to see if i don't get because there are so many different ways of really good example at the moment is tiger king which is you know everyone is like this is the most amazing i mean i have some massive issues with tiger king i should be careful because i'm currently on the netflix coin at the moment yeah let's not go i have to stop it just for your own good i honestly believe there's some pretty dismal storytelling in tiger king but it doesn't matter. And I, th- I think there was a great piece in The New Yorker this week that reviewed it. And it said, you know what? That film is almost a product of the time we are living in. Quarantine time. That film was released everywhere, sort of two or three weeks into lockdown. And everyone was like, oh, we got this extraordinary piece of escapism to watch. And it's, listen, I'm not dissing it. I can sit here and be snotty about it and there's some terrible storytelling in it. I fucking watched all seven episodes, although you could have done it in four or five, maybe even three. But it disappoints me and it feels at times like it's a just a parade of freaks. We both had our opinions of Tiger King, but also just generally how much of a doc sometimes manipulates the characters or the story or the setting to make it more interesting. What, what is your view on that? How much can you say not tell or cut out the entire characters out? Well, first of all, all documentaries manipulate their characters. You have to manipulate all characters. Most people, when they see one of your films, don't like it. It's their first reaction. They don't like it. You know, I filmed with the, the cyclist Bradley Wiggins and what I thought was a really quite sort of honest but quite an affectionate portrait. The first time he watched it, he turned around and said, I don't think I like any of it. I fucking hate it. And I think mm-hmm. that's quite a common reaction for anybody that's been in a film. But, you know, again, these are real cliches, but I really think they stand true, is that you have to be really honest with your characters before you do it. And you have to say, you know, I said to Bradley, we did the first bit of filming with Bradley and he, he, he wasn't enjoying it. And he's like, oh, you know, I don't want to answer those questions. And I'm like, well, let's not make the film. Let's not bother then. You know, you have to trust me that I'm not going to stitch you up and I'm going to present your story that's, accurately. That's something like you mentioned to me when we discussed stuff you've been approached by or you're turned down by those, like, I don't know, I don't want to name because I don't know what's in the books, what's not. Um but I'm always fascinated. Does it come with your experience and you've, you know, you've done quite well as a documentarian that you kind of easily turn down projects as well? Like something like that to say to Bradley Wiggins, who the doc, which probably will be watched a lot, just on a pure character, to be like, let's just not make a film. Does it come from the fact you have another six projects lined up or does it come no, from the gut feeling there's not. no point in that? Absolutely mm. not. No, it's Jesus. If only I did have six projects lined up. No. 
but it's you know there's long periods where i'm doing nothing but it's partly a game of chicken it's like do you want to do this properly or should we not bother doing it at all but also it's like if from the get-go he's going to be like that then the film is already compromised but i think as long as you're straight with someone and telling them i told him look i want to ask you at some point in this film about your relationship with your father which is a really difficult one and we're going to come to that at some point i'm not going to do it on day one but it's going to be out there and i think one of the problems going back to again tiger king it feels like i'm being a real snob dissing it it's wildly successful i can't argue against it but you know i read in the new york times that some of those characters have been told by the filmmakers that they're making a film about the conservation of tigers come on guys that's poor that's what gives documentary filmmakers that makes it harder for us the next time we approach someone if you zoom in on your work as well have you ever had to lie to to get certain shot or reaction or permission maybe with an actual character i'm filming with yeah no lying never works you always get caught out someone can come back and say well i withdraw my consent for the film it's self-defeating mm-hmm. you know we one of the first feature doc i made live forever which was about musicians in the 90s it's and, great yeah i watched it yesterday because that's why i wanted to watch it and yeah i found it on on youtube somewhere yeah great and so we approached you know one of the first people we approached was damon alban from blur and he said that he'd love to do the film he felt it felt like the right moment it was just as britpop was finishing and we shot with him first and on the day he was an absolute fucking nightmare to film with he was grumpy he was difficult he was awkward it was my first feature doc i was terrified i was shooting on super 16 which was terrifying and um he was really really difficult but it was still quite a good interview i thought and at the end he refused to sign a release form and we said well that gives us a real problem with our financiers we can't just keep cutting this film if if there's a chance you won't be in it and you want some sort of editorial approval and he said i don't want editorial approval i just don't want to be stitched up i've been stitched up and i said to him i looked him in the eye and said mm-hmm. i am not going to stitch you up in this film so you can come and watch the film when we've finished it and see that and so it came to the end <laughs> we'd forgotten about this then it's like oh shit we still got to show it to damon and then about 3 or 4 months in we've been cutting for 3 or 4 months which is quite short for a feature doc and Damon's management ring up and say well Damon wants to come in and and have editorial approval I'm like we well, hasn't got editorial approval he can come in and watch it so we haven't stitched him up but he hasn't got editorial approval anyway he came in it was pretty excruciating and then he said well I've decided I didn't like the interview at all so I want to do the interview again that was an unexpected one and I said okay fine you can do the interview again but you can't watch the film you know mm-hmm. we've not shown the film to Noel Gallagher we've not shown it to Jarvis Cocker we've not shown it to Liam Liam Gallagher so you can't watch it so there was this weird standoff with his manager and Dane and, and they said all right I'll watch the film I said okay if you watch the film you can't do your interview again and so he watched it and you suddenly remember there's some really quite excruciating bits in it with regards to him but he watched it and he said you know what that was quite painful at times but you didn't stitch me up you honored my story honestly and he signed the release form and 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 the happy day so i do think you just have to be honest do you keep friends or at least acquaintances with some of the characters you filmed you sort of no. cut it off 
No, I don't think so. You're not there to make friends with them. You're not. And but just accidentally, people... you sort of never made friends by accident with like some not conspiracy really, guys no. in a trailer somewhere in the US talking about D.B. Cooper. No, I don't think so. Because I think there are people that sometimes make that mistake and they want to hang out with these characters afterwards. And But I think if you take that attitude, it, it, it compromises you even on a subconscious level when you're filming. Because you, you meant to have some sort of distance between you and the character, yeah. you mean? Mm -hmm. I think so, yeah. Um, and I think they probably respect you more for it. You're making a film about them, that's all. I do know for a fact some of them keep emailing you, like, before they die or something. But that's partly a duty of care more than a friendship thing. It's not like I'm suddenly, oh, shit, I need to give Bernie a call because I'm missing him. It's just, you know, <laughs> keeping in touch and saying, how are you doing? Because mm -hmm. they haven't seen the film yet. So I think you still have a duty of care to them until they've seen the film and then hate you or... <laughs> so talking about characters you filmed, for example, for D.B. Cooper, and then characters you cut out of that film. Yeah. When I found out that some of them, you know, you spend time, it might be even a special trip just to film them and their story. And then it's just on an editing floor, on a cutting floor. Do you, by now, you just easily do it? Or is no, it still I hate that it. nagging? I hate it. I hate it. I hate doing it. Because even though you don't become their friend, you have to build a relationship with that person. And I always want to honor somebody's story when they're in one of my films. I want to know that I've caught their story properly, or at least tried to. You know, it's a big deal. It's a really, you shouldn't forget as a documentary filmmaker, it's a big deal for someone to sit down in front of a camera and un burden elements of themselves and i think you have to respect that process and i don't think it i'm going to say this one more time about tiger king it's the final time i did enjoy it it's very successful but i just feel at times they don't respect the characters enough in that series and i think that's sad and you have to so if you film with someone and they give you a piece they're not just giving you a piece of their time they're giving you a piece of themselves to then do that and then take them out of the film is it is hard and i do have sleepless nights about it and i have regrets about doing it and i don't enjoy the moment where i have to tell them do you um, ever yeah that's what i was gonna ask do you ever sort of email them or call them and explain this would happen what that's why you're not in the film yeah i think you have to because they've given you their time to you you have to give at least at the very least that back you know some of the early films i made i unfortunately or fortunately had the camera turned on myself in them and it was mm -hmm. one of the most instructive things i learned what it is like having to present some of yourself to camera and i think people forget that because people in documentaries aren't actors i mean some of them try and be and they sort of act out a role of themselves they think will be more interesting but nine times out of ten people in documentaries are not actors and you have a responsibility to them being on camera and it's a big deal it's a big deal do you feel that bigger budgets do make a better doc does the money matter because obviously there's an image of slightly lower budget medium than fiction i think for feature docs the money matters for the edit. I think the edit, particularly on feature docs, is is crucial because you do need to get what is, you know, again, rather 
in a rather cliched manner, referred to as the third act. A lot of documentary subjects don't naturally lend themselves to a third act. You know, a lot of docs are very good as an hour, but once you get over an hour and you need to turn into something else and resolve it, they're hard. And those sort of moments are constructed more in the edit. And I think the edit... Mm -hmm. The longer you have in the edit, the more time you have to try material and fail with material and try other things with material. That's, I'd always, always have more edit time over a better camera or even a bigger soundtrack, a bigger composer. The time in the edit is, is like gold. Can you talk a little bit through your process of editing? Is it sort of shaping first or do you delve into certain key scenes? What's just well, where do you start? I first of all like to shoot and edit. That's my ideal. So I like to shoot material, some material, and then start cutting and then shoot some more. So if I have a series of characters, I'll shoot one or two of them. And I won't shoot all, in an ideal world, I won't shoot all my material with them. I'll maybe come back and do a pickup shoot with them. But I want to edit first because I always feel that the biggest mistake in documentaries is shooting too much material. And one of my very basic pieces of advice is always on a first day with a character. It's the same with Bradley. The temptation is always to take the camera out immediately and just start filming, start filming. We've got to get this. We're missing it. We're missing it. I'd rather sit down and chat to Bradley on a first day at his kitchen table for two hours without even taking the camera out of the bag and then maybe take it out for 10, 15 minutes at the end of the day. You'll get more and better material out of him in that 10, 15 minutes than you would have if you had the camera running for the three hours. You may keep thinking, oh, that was great. That was great. I missed that. Well, that's life. You miss a load of shit. But sometimes you store it away and you think, I'm going to get that somewhere else out of him another time. So, but I guess it's also being on your toes, right? Because I remember when we were filming a D.B. Cooper Bernie character. It's one of the first yeah. days in U.S. in Florida. And they were like, let's roll, because he's there naked on a balcony waving yeah. at you, John. Yeah. And you're meeting him first time. So that's yeah, sort that's of... a meeting you suddenly, you suddenly yeah. just suddenly want. Yeah. Yeah, but again, as soon as we got that moment, we then stopped filming and then chatted to him for a long while and set up. And yeah, I can't remember what, what was the original question. <laughs> it's fine. We somewhere we're talking somewhere. <laughs> so Tom is asking. I don't know if you see the question, but I'll read it. How All do right. branded docs play into pitching slash being considered for channel commissioned docs? So I guess the brand money versus the... That's a good question. The branded doc. I have so far only done one, and it was a very strange experience. I mean, I think they're strange branded docs because a commercial, everyone knows, okay, this is being made with a particular message. We want the story is all. And then branded falls into this weird sort of Wild West bit in the middle where... We want real storytelling, but we still want... Selling. Selling. Yeah, books. we still want... So the only one I've ever done was... I mean, the title actually sounds as dull as Ditchwater. And the full title is Amiga, Every Split Second Counts, A History of Olympic Timekeeping. <laughs> now, actually, we actually got some pretty good characters in that film, and it actually stands up. But because it's sponsored by Amiga, and again... I knew that from the beginning. You know, we had to, you know, interview the CEO of Amiga, and which is a little weird in a sort of 
40 minute 60 minute documentary it suddenly it does jump out so i'm i'm maybe not the best person to ask about branding because i've only made one and i'm not really sure how you navigate it i mean there are plenty of films out there in which a brand will just put money into and they just want their name at the end and they just want to hang out at sundance <laughs> thinking that they'll get into sundance that's always the first <laughs> thing well we're making this for sundance oh yeah just make it for Sundance and it gets into Sundance. That's how it works. Making it, but, yeah, um, making it for Cannes. Yeah, that's the... <laughs> yeah, but um, yeah, the branding is a tricky one for me. I find I found it a very difficult... Ex Listen, I still did it and I took Amiga's money happily. Although I fucking did you buy a watch? Did you buy I asked a... many times for a watch in many meetings and I never got a bloody watch. Silas yeah. is asking. Good old Silas oh, from Brazil. Silas. How are you, Silas? How does a young film like get into commercials? And I think maybe you can talk a little bit about how did you end up in commercials when you were always doing docs? Was it after being signed with Pulse? No, 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 no. I was at another commercials company before Pulse called 2AM. I was fortunate enough to have a film at Sundance. So I had a film in Sundance. And off the back of that was approached by a, a commercials production company in London. And there was a Vogue then and it became ever more so over the years to get documentary filmmakers in to be part of a commercials roster. You know, but then they... directing like a doco style commercials, that's what was kind of the idea then? Yeah. In fact, the first one I pitched on, which I didn't get was for British Airways, which was eventually done by a girl called Siri Bunford, who's a great commercials director, did a wonderful commercial, uh, an ident for Film 4's, Kubrick season where she mm -hmm. restaged the moment of the kid on the tricycle going around the um, Overlook Hotel in The Shining and that British Airways pitch was very much you know going to meet like rodeo characters or Day of the Dead in Mexico so it was pure documentary but the association with the brand is hey we fly to Texas or we fly to Mexico and then the first one I actually did was with the, the actor Anthony Hopkins talking about his favourite movie moments so it was that sort of doc style interview but do you enjoy doing commercials? Yeah I really enjoy them, they have the downside that, that docs do, it's no different, I think the challenge of going from 90 minutes to 90 seconds or 60 seconds is a really good discipline you get to work with a whole different set of people. You get to work with more expensive cameras. You get better hotels, which is nice now and then. Better flights, better, as we you know. You get better flights. You get wine with your meals. Um, that's if they, I mean, a commercial still going to happen after all this? I've no idea. Listen, I'm going to ask one last from Ksenia. How do you know if the idea for the doc is good? Well, sometimes you don't. I think if you film with someone, again, we talked right at the beginning about filming some material with someone. And if you feel it comes alive or it leads to, it, you know, it can be as basic as this is an interesting, unusual story or this is an interesting and unusual take on a story I thought I knew. I think you really just have to go with your gut instinct. I was watching your Peabody Awards speech yesterday. I found it on YouTube. Jesus, great! You first of all, this shit? well, <laughs> research. I dig deep. Uh, first of all, there's a great tie we're wearing, and secondly, you mentioned kind of jokingly that that you are a sore loser 
in these award kind of situations and you were Emmy nominated, BAFTA nominated, Sundance Grand Twice nominated. BAFTA nominated. <laughs> <laughs> and then my question really is, is not so much about the awards because obviously everyone likes a bit of an award and it helps a film, it helps to promote, I guess it eventually might help to win some. But as a, as a documentarian, do you have to lose a lot while making the films? Do you have to sacrifice and compromise throughout? Or is the auteur sort of strong there? No, I think you always have to compromise. I think if you're not compromising, then you're doing something wrong. It's a very awards-fixated industry. It is. There's no getting around that. Is it? Because, yeah, I think it is. Because awards help you. And But then you look at every fucking documentary filmmaker and it's like award-winning documentary filmmaker. I mean, every documentary filmmaker is award-winning in some respect. And I actually genuinely don't think I make films that tend to win awards because most of my films are quite daft or quite stupid or quite a bit more of a romp. And they, you know, the Scientology film, of which I'm very, very proud of, I think the one award we won was the NME Best Film Award, which is that trophy that's the middle finger. And I think, you know, a lot of films win, a lot of documentary films win because they're almost awarding the people in them. And they go to mm -hmm. films that are very serious and distressing. And if I get to an award ceremony, if you get that far, you might as well fucking win it. And if I lose it, I'm not going to pretend, uh, uh, I'm pissed off. I'm like, I fucking wanted to win that. And I didn't. But then, you know, there's usually semi-decent wine there, so you can drown your sorrows. But And semi-decent yeah, hotel. The compromises of a documentary filmmaker are not really that many. It's a privilege to be doing it. It's a lot of fun. You know, you moan about any other job. But I think we're all genuine, and it's rare for me to be serious. But I think... At the moment, we are, you know, we're all being quite humbled by people that are working on our behalf in hospitals and supermarkets at the moment. And I'm fortunate enough to be still carrying on with the documentary at the moment. And I still am my miserable self at times with it. And I've found myself several times a day thinking, fucking hell, mate, get over yourself. You're making... It's great, and I love it when people watch it and they're entertained. But at the end of the day, you are just making glorified wallpaper. You are. And on this note, a talk yeah. about glorified wallpaper. Yeah. Stay God. in. So, stay, so, so, so stay, stay in. Stay safe. Save the NHS. <laughs> love ya. Thank All you, right, Bye. Cheers. Bye. Well, ladies and gentlemen, John Dawa. Next week I speak to Paul Dugdale, music films director. He shot concerts and films for the likes of The Rolling Stones, Prodigy, Taylor Swift, Adele and Paul McCartney. So see you next week, same place. Open. Filmmakers Talk.